Welcome back to 100 Plus, an historical overview of 100 of the most important people, events, and ideas of the last few thousand years. This is a survey of the forces and factors that have shaped today's world, the Christian faith, and you. Today's lecture is a discussion. I am going to be talking again with Dave Moore, and we're going to be discussing the most important theologians and books of the 20th century. So let me pause here and say, David, Welcome back. Good to see Thank you. you. Um, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So, um, David, as you know, but as those of you who are listening may not, uh, in a previous uh, discussion just um, a few podcasts ago, we were talking about the 19th century. And if you heard that, you know that Dave is the founder and president of Two Cities Ministries in Austin, Texas. By the way, I talked with our mutual friend in Austin this morning. And it was 50 in Austin at like eight o'clock in the morning, 54 here, supposed to get up to like 73 in Austin, wow. 79 in Chicago. Hey, pretty so, good. Uh, not many times when Chicago <laughs> can claim better weather than, although arguably July and August, we can claim better weather. It's not 120. Um, anyway, David has written four books, most recently, Stuck in the Present, How History Frees and Forms Christians, which we did talk about on a previous podcast. Uh, he is uh, working on a YouTube channel called More Engaging, which will feature some of the insights of his writing and his interviews with over 200 writers, including three Pulitzer Prize winners and William Buckley. Um, and as I said in the previous introduction of you, David, I'm not entirely certain you, you uh, checked the box for the most important aspect of being a guest on a podcast. And that is that you make the host look smart. But we're going to go with it. Uh, <laughs> last time I asked you on because you had just sent out your list of books that you had read in the previous year. And you were talking about your list of 250, the next 250 books that you were going to read. By the way, I think this, I, I, I'm not going to stand by this stab, but it's something like 40% of Americans haven't read a book since their high school graduation. So um, that sounds low. Ahead. Pardon? <laughs> that sounds sound low. low. <laughs> you're, you're ahead of those uh, <laughs> people for sure. So when we talk about the 19th century, talk about key theologians, you mentioned Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, Schleiermacher, and Dostoevsky. I mentioned Schleiermacher, uh, Darby, John Henry Newman, Abraham Kuyper. B.B. Warfield, Dostoevsky, and a second Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, for his second inaugural event, uh, address. And you said no fair. You would have added him as well. Yes. Uh, then we talked about books. You mentioned um, a number of books in the 19th century. And then you talked about Emily Dickinson's poetry, Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Henry David uh, and I'm going to say Thoreau, but I know you said that's not the way to say it. I think you said it's Thoreau. No, it's Thoreau. 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 Okay. Well, I'll work on that. Yeah, yeah. And, and very uh, interestingly, and and uh, you know, uh, I appreciated the prompt you mentioned, Frederick Douglass. Yes. I listed uh, Spurgeon's sermons in his steps, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Les Mis, The Brothers K, Frankenstein. And an odd choice, the picture of Dorian Gray. So we're now turning to the 20th century. So the years 1900 and 1999. And um, I thought about engaging you in a brief conversation uh, about the recent Atlantic piece written by uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, in which he was decrying that um, uh, Kanye, uh, well, I guess the artist, previously known as Kanye West, now just known as Ye. Mm -hmm. uh, he had just been on his uh, anti-Semitic rant. And, uh, but then uh, what, what Williams was most incensed about was that uh, Ye argued you should never read any books. Mm -hmm. And uh, then Samuel Bankman freed the great uh, moral uh, leader of <laughs> first part of the 21st century. He argued the same thing. He's very skeptical of books, he said. I don't want to say no book is ever worth reading, but I will, I do say that 
if you wrote a book, you blanked up and you should um, have just posted a six paragraph blog post. Mm. So Williams in this Atlantic article sort of goes DEFCON one on these guys and says, uh, so it's so unfortunate what they have said. Mm. I thought we could talk about that, but then I thought we'll just sound like two old guys just whining about the younger <laughs> generation. And I do that enough already that I decided I'm not going to go there. So I want to give, uh, just, just for my sake and the listener's sake, a quick overview of the 20th century, because I have not in these hundred lectures so far said much about the 20th century. So just to frame our discussion about the more important theologians and, um, and books of the 20th century, I'm just going to remind people by walking through these 10 decades, and it truly, I mean, the pace has picked up as we as we study. Now we've got more of the information, but the rate of change, so consequently, the more significant kinds of events taking place, and some of the more significant, the difference between you know 1900 and 1999 is just so much greater than the difference between uh, I don't know, uh, certainly than 1800 and 1899, but so much more significant, perhaps than you know 1200 to uh, 1599 or 1799. Anyway, so um, when it opens, Britain rules the global empire. When it closes, Britain, um, not so much, although they seem to be dominating the news as we march towards the coronation of uh, Charles. Whether or not uh, Harry is going to be there, I, I see from scanning the headlines, it's a big topic of conversation. Uh, so lots of global wars, um, two of them of massive significance. Cars become a thing. Henry Ford invents the first one in 1896. And uh, Ford Motor Company sells the first car in 1903. And, uh, you know, 100 years later, we've got nuclear weapons and, uh, and airplanes and uh, whole industries. So, um, so in 1900, let me just, just say, 1900 to 1909, the Edwardian age in reference to the British King Edward, uh, Wright brothers flew first time in Kitty Hawk. Um, and by the way, did you read uh, the, the book on the Wright brothers by... Um, hmm. Dr. Oh. McCullough. McCullough, yes. Great book. Recommend. I just, I just got it. Okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put it in my top books of uh, you know the 20th century, but let's just say the Wright brothers were a lot more than bike mechanics. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Uh, 1910 to 1919, of course, the two big things here we have um, World War One and the Russian Revolution. Um, for what it's worth, the Titanic sinks and the British, the Spanish flu, the British flu. I'm all, I'm I'm ranking on the Brits. The Spanish <laughs> flu. Kills somewhere between 20 and 100 million, depending upon whose stats you look at. And by reference, last year, so the last official number of COVID deaths I could get globally was 6 million. So the Spanish flu killed at least 20 million, maybe 100 million. And, and there was a lot, obviously, smaller population. There. 1920 to 1929, we have uh, Prohibition, which was very much a feminist movement. I did not really appreciate all that was going on, all the good that was going on in Prohibition. I've only ever heard it, you know, mocked and ridiculed and realized, wow, there were some good things that happened. Of course, you get the roaring 20s, um, uh, urbanization, immigration, until the stock market crash in 1929. Scope's monkey trial also happens back then. So you've got the fundamentalism and modernism uh, split. 1930 to 39, Great Depression, World War II begins, rise of the Third Reich, um, get neo-orthodoxy with Karl Barth, who I suspect to talk about. 1940 to 49, Pearl Harbor, Hiroshima, end of World War II, rise of the United States, beginning of the Cold War. The 50s, we have a lot of Cold War. We have suburbanization because of the highways. And this is... For some, uh, arguably the high water mark in terms of church attendance and patriotism. Uh, also, the rise of liberal theology, big push by Boltmann, um, JEPD theory, those kinds of things. 
The 60s are, of course, the 60s, social change on a national scale, launched in no small part by the advent of the pill. Civil rights, we have a couple of assass three assassinations, two Kennedys and Dr. King. The 70s, Watergate, Vietnam, inflation, gas lines, the Iran hostage crisis, the rise of the Jesus people. The 80s, Reagan, stock market boom, war on drugs, rise of big business uh, with sport, the collapse of the USSR. Uh, you also get music and fashion. My youngest son, 15 years ago, came down one morning for breakfast wearing the most atrocious clothes ever. And I said, what in the world is this? He goes, this is what people dress like in the 80s. I said, no, they did not. I was alive in the 80s. Nobody looked like that. He goes, you don't know what was happening. I'm like, seriously, you were not even born then. And you're going to tell me what people dress like in the 80s. Anyway, uh, it wasn't a great fashion year. But then the 90s, uh, free trade and globalization, computers, tech boom, internet, Gulf War. So I think the big thing I just would emphasize uh, again, just as we launch into this, is that it's 100 years unlike any other 100 years in terms of the pace of change fueled in part by science and technology and all the sort of cultural and geopolitical uh, machinations because of that. And that there is a major mood swing between the early part of the 20th century when there's all this hope and optimism, science and technology are going to fix all our problems and we're going to hold hands and sing kumbaya and there's going to be utopia and then the last part of the 20th century where we've gone through these wars massive killings we're realizing we are the problem technology can't fix our the human heart and then uh, perhaps it's also worth noting that the 60s seem to be a pivotal generation for all the kinds of uh, social effects that they uh, impact on us so Anything you want to say about any of that before I ask you about your theologians? Yes, a couple things. One, um, uh, just to tweak a little bit on the Henry Ford comment, he's actually not technically the inventor of the car, but he's actually the person that came up with a way to mass market the assembly line yep. thing. He gets the credit for being the inventor, which maybe is just misspoke, but the it's a brilliant thing and, and that causes all kinds of uh, kind of like the printing press in a lot of ways. I mean, I think the car has done more uh, in ways that we don't understand uh, for kind of even things like loneliness and lack of community, right. because now you can kind of, you know, go off 50 miles to a church where you leave your community by a long shot and all that sort of stuff. And, and just the whole idea that you now have young people who can hop in the backseat of a car away from um, the gaze of uh, parents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it, yes, the car changed a lot and all these, when I was reading about, um, how self-driving cars might change things it it almost starts to approach that kind of magnitude again because yeah. yeah um yeah it just changes so much about city life and other things but the other thing about prohibition that's interesting is that a lot of the most conservative christians jay gresham machen at all were actually against prohibition <laughs> Because they felt like it actually was undermining the veracity of scripture because it was arbitrarily coming up with something that wasn't really biblical. Mm. And so even though prohibition had some positive effects, like with the temperance movement, and obviously a lot of these women that started it had louses for husbands that were squandering their money, you know, buying drink and stuff. It is an interesting sidelight that some of the most conservative Christians were actually opposed to it. And I did not know that. And and I, I sort of feel now like I just don't know anything about prohibition because I what I knew was the way it was presented, you know, in high school and other things in college. Yeah. It's just this crazy morality play, ill conceived, a bad, bad effort to make it an amendment, actually changed the constitution, it didn't work. Yeah. Um, but uh, Tim Stafford had an article, I think he maybe wrote a book about the Prohibition Movement, and he started by saying, 
okay, everything I thought I knew about this, I was wrong. There was actually some good things that came mm -hmm. out of it. Alcoholism was a real problem at the time. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, as before, what we're what we're doing here largely is talking about um, uh, a you're talking about a century in light of some of the bigger players, uh, whether they were um, theologians in in the classic sense or they just were the big thought and opinion leaders. We sort of bled into that a little bit, and then we did the same with books. So let's start with theologians. Who are your who do you think are the most significant, which doesn't mean you necessarily line up with them, but the right. most influential theologians of the 20th century? Well, my list, and, and again, within the confines of, uh, of this interview, but pretty tough to pick. But I think all these are very consequential. Uh, Paul Tillich, Rudolf Boltmann. I would say probably the Niebuhr brothers, but certainly Reinhold. Uh, sure. But H. Richard is is consequential yep. as well, but probably more historical theologian of ideas and stuff. Uh, Bonhoeffer, Bart, Pope Benedict. I didn't pick John Paul because he's kind of more of an ethicist than a theologian, but he's consequential. But Pope D Benedict for sure. N.T. Wright, J.I. Packer, Rowan Williams. And then two Eastern Orthodox, uh, Meyendorf and Schmemann. Uh, and then I would add um, uh, Fleming Rutledge, and I, I'll describe why later on uh, when we get to her. But that would be my kind of, uh, I think it's a pretty good list. I think those are all very consequential people. It's obviously lopping off a whole bunch. And these are always hard, like, you know, top 10, top 20, top 50, yep. whatever. So there you go. So I, I know, um, well, looking at your list, uh, yeah, Tillich, I mean, the, my, my, when I had concert for Intro to Theology, he spoke highly of Tillich, he said, but then he said, even the stopped watch is right twice a day. So that was a little bit, obviously, dismissive. Um, not surprised you've got uh, Boltmann. Um, again, I, I, I'm not a fan of Boltmann's, but Niebuhr's, yes, uh, and I wondered, since you just, the, the list you sent in just had Niebuhr, I thought, okay, is he going to go, which way is he going to go? Bonhoeffer, um, you know, interesting, um, Bart, uh, Pope Benedict, you then hit this, this run of the Brits, and, and mm -hmm. you don't even have on here and you're probably going to add them in, as writers, but you don't even have uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, Tolkien, uh, Chesterton. Um, yeah, so it's what what is it about the Brits that they seem to come in big in yeah. in American evangelicalism? Well, I, I do have uh, the ones you mentioned, Lewis, Tolkien, and, and Orwell under writers. I mean, obviously, Lewis could kind of go both spots. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, boy, this is a, this could be a long conversation too. I'm trying to think through how best to say this. I think there are certain places, Scotland's like this too. Scotland is like this, both with thinkers. When you think of philosophers, uh, you know, Adam Smith, David Hume, writers, uh, 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 theologians. I mean, some of these places are outsized their influence is outsized from the actual place where they're coming from i think for a bunch of reasons probably the brits have that educational system and some other things um and maybe you know some people have said like when you're surrounded by uh more violent extremes and weather you develop I was just say, when it's raining outside all the time you stay inside and read books yeah, well, you develop a tragic view of life, I think, okay. that gives you a more substantial sense. You know, obviously, Lewis comes from Ireland. That's where he's born. Uh, you know, Irish are great storytellers. You know, I mean, I think there's a bunch of things working there that produce great, substantial writing, whether yeah. it's theologians well, or not. It does it sort of begs the question also, how much do they play off of each other and how much do they become more significant because they are 
I don't want to say it's, you know, it's like you become a better tennis, tennis player because you're playing tennis against a better tennis player. But how much is it that you are raising your game because you're being exposed to more? Yeah, I, I taught, uh, I, this is 15 years ago, but I taught a class on Lewis and then I taught a class on Tolkien and then I taught a class on Chesterton. Wow. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to call it the, the Brits. Apparently that's the, those are the people I'm, I'm drawn to. Yeah. So I have a Rowan Williams story. I was uh, I was at Cambridge. He when he stepped down from being um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he became the president of one of the colleges at Cambridge. And uh, I was there uh, at the Tyndale House studying. And I'm walking across campus. And as I'm walking across campus, this guy and I I literally thought he was homeless. He comes out next to me and he's pushing a grocery, you know, cart. And I look over at him and I realize I go, oh, my goodness, this is Ron Williams. And I I look at him and I'm like, yeah, no, I'm positive. This is Ron. what is he doing? And I, I introduce myself. I said, you know, uh, Dr. Williams, I'm 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 quite taken here that you're pushing this cart. But I've uh, you know, I. I <laughs> I know who you are and I've read some of your stuff and I'm, I'm uh, aware you've had a really challenging last 10 years. What, what's going on? And he says, well, I'm, I'm raising money for a homeless shelter and I'm hoping that people will ask me what I'm doing, pushing this cart and I oh. can ask them to give money to this homeless shelter. And I'm like, Oh, well, I walked right into that one, but I'm thinking, you're not going to raise a lot of money. Just, just for the record, I gave him some money, but I thought you're going to have to be a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. I thought. That is a great, you should tell those who are listening that he's got a very distinct look with his bushy oh. eyebrows and everything. So that to accentuate the picture, if they look up Rowan Williams, they go, Oh my gosh. Right. Just normally he looks like a homeless guy. Right. He's, he was disheveled. He's pushing a grocery cart and I just am assuming, yep, homeless guy. Now he's obviously very bright. I didn't think about putting him down here. I've got, I think I've got his book on Dostoevsky, uh, but I haven't read it. So um, Ralph Wood told me at Baylor, in fact, one of Ralph's books, I'm going to recommend a Flannery O'Connor. Um, but Ralph told me that um, and he's a real expert on Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky. He said that, uh, Rowan Williams' book on Dostoevsky is the best he's ever read. He said it's dense, yeah. but I've not read it either, but um, there's a recommendation. Yeah, well, it looked, I bought it, and then I started, read the first paragraph, and I said, oh, in another life, I'm going to have enough time to, to do this. I'd love to do it, but it, it's going to have to get motivated by teaching a class in Dostoevsky or something, so... Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I know uh, Shmeman, Shmeman, am I saying that right? Yes, it's kind of awkward to say. I've heard uh, Ken Meyer on Mars Hill Audio. Uh, he mm -hmm. loves this guy. And so I've heard him cited several times. But uh, so if they're, and I don't know this John Mandorf either. So you say they're, they're two Orthodox guys. I've read very little Orthodox theology. I have a I have a recommendation, Mike. Um, so I would recommend I years ago, uh, you might even know him, Daniel Clendenin. Do you know that name? I do Ring not. Up. So Daniel wrote, I'll put these up for the, but he wrote this two-part series. Is that hitting both yep, sides? Yep, I can see those. So, yep. so one is a great, you know, Bishop Ware has a good uh a survey of Eastern Orthodox theology, which is good too. But I I really like this one a lot, this one that Baker does. I, I think it's still in print. And then the reader, what he's done is he's taken some of the best uh, thinkers in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, including the ones I mentioned, uh, Lasky and others, um, and given some of their best uh, chapters out of books and whatnot and and kind of thematic stuff it's it's really well done so that's a great introduction and i think one thing i would add about eastern orthodox theology that i appreciate i i, I did a piece for touchstone magazine years ago and you know they publish orthodox catholic and then 
typically classical Protestants. Um, the Orthodox tradition, I think, there, there's a lot about it that I disagree with. But the one thing that I appreciate a lot is that they thought one of the biggest mistakes that was made by the Latin church, by the West, was the idea of theology moving from the churches to the universities. Now, the rise of universities is hugely influential, net positive, I would say. But I do think on this, they have a strong point. They have never uh, wanted theology to leave the church. So their theologians, one, they're suspicious of systematizing theology, yeah. uh, which is a Western impulse, but they're also suspicious when theology gets unmoored from a worshiping environment. So I think there's a couple of those big themes that I think Western Christians could learn some good things from. So I think I, think I just will. I, I will just take a half step back here and remind those of you who have listened to the previous 80-some lectures that the Orthodox Church, capital O Orthodox, not saying that this is, um, I don't want to say Orthodox, that this is proper theology or uh, not heretical theology, but it's capital O refers to the Eastern Church. The Great Schism happens in the 11th century. This is before, you know, 400 years, 500 years before the Protestant um, Reformation, which is the split in the Western Church. So the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, and, and the fight, the, the division was arguably the presenting problem was um, icons, but underlining that was just the big issue between the Bishop of Rome claiming that that, that the church in Rome was over all the other churches, and that was some of the pushback. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, okay. so those are interesting. Anybody else here you want to say something about? I've been reading more right. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, just before we signed on, I was reading a little bit of his um, Surprised by Hope. Yeah, I don't, great. I, I I appreciate Wright. I don't always agree with him. Uh, he's I I sort of feel about Wright like I feel about Chesterton that I wish they had a stronger editor. So I think there's a lot of brilliance, but some of the things could be cleaned up. But they're just, I mean, I've got to think he sits down and writes, and it's pretty much good to go. And it's there's so many ideas in in what he says. Um, I just feel like I got to work a little harder than I'd like to. Yeah. Is there a particular right book that you're strong on? Um, you know, I've not read any of his big books. I read Surprised by Hope, which was terrific. Actually, worked through that with our youngest son when he was on a mission trip. We 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 kind of did that together. That was fun. I think The Challenge of Jesus is a good starting book. I think his uh, his popular commentaries are decent. Yeah. So again, I think like you, I, 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 I have mixed feelings about him based on what I've read. And I've certainly listened to him quite a bit. Um, there's no doubt about his brilliance is uh, his abilities and gifts. I, 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 what I wonder about kind of maybe somewhat analogous to what you said Um as brilliant as people are, and I won't name names because I could name a number and I don't want to do that, but I, I do get a little worried no matter how gifted a person is when they're just cranking out book after book after book after book, <clears throat> because I know other people that I think about, and this is a positive, so I'll mention his name, like a Ralph Wood. Ralph's written, he's now in his 80s, he's not going to write any more books, but he's written eight or nine books, you know, and he started like in his thirties, yeah. but he real, and he's a brilliant guy, great writer, great, great teacher as well. Real unusual in that regard. Um, and, you know, I think there's something to be said for incubating and gestating. And I think there's certainly people that I think are cranking out a lot of books and they're still very good books. But I wonder what it'd be like if, if instead of writing, say, 80 books, it was given arbitrary number, they had written 30 or 20, right. you know, I, well, I, I don't know the answer to that. You can't know the answer, but it makes me wonder. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, um, yes, 
well said. And um, yeah, let me, well, let me give you my books for the, okay. or my theologians, and then we'll turn to books. So yeah. I had Carl uh, Barth and, you know, uh, when you make, when you're a theologian and you make it on the cover of Time Magazine, that's got to count for something. Um, so speaking of people who wrote a lot, you know, the joke is, Nobody's read everything that Bart wrote, including Bart. Um, so Paul Tillich, I had down. Although when I wrote down Tillich, I felt like I almost had to write down Gandhi. <laughs> like, mm. If I'm willing to go with Tillich, and Gandhi obviously is not so much a theologian, certainly not a Christian theologian, but um, he just was out there. Uh, I had Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm going to do a whole podcast on Bonhoeffer uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, I, and I put down he'd protested. He, he was very clear that he was not a theologian. Uh, that was not his formal discipline. But um, yeah, uh, I had John Paul II. And again, I, I sort of get pulled into influence here, uh, like who has the biggest influence and his, the way he stands up uh, against the Soviet bloc, mm -hmm. I just thought was very important. Uh, I had N.T. Wright, um, Martin Luther King. Um, I put down uh, Desmond Tutu. I, I just thought, while I don't agree with all, with some of what Tutu said, I, I don't think he's always historically orthodox in some of his Christian claims. His truth and reconciliation work was, I just thought, so profound, and I sure couldn't have done it. Uh, I put down Miroslav Volf just because in some circles that they would say he's the leading theologian today. Uh, I'm not sure that I would go there, but I, I certainly appreciate him. And then for the greatest theologian of the 20th century, I had down Oprah Winfrey. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. Well, if great means influence. Then, then I think you're right. And, and influence in worldview kinds of shaping ways. Yeah. Uh, not, yeah obviously not a systematician, not a, not careful in uh, sort of developing things in the way an academic would be, but yes, a huge, um, yeah. the whole, the whole rise of moral therapeutic deism uh, seems to fit with her um, imprint. Okay. So yeah. let's, uh, let's pivot and talk. Um, by the way, I put down, uh, just because I had to have more Brits, I put down honorary mention to John Stott, uh, yeah. who's got a big influence in my life. I would, um, uh, Stott, Stott would definitely be, and those are hard. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I I wouldn't disagree with any of your picks. I think those, those are all great. Um, I think until like, you know, just starting kind of with the beginning of there, uh, uh, because I have them as well, I think why he's significant is a couple things that I think are are big. One is that, you know, Tillich has that line that any theologian worth his salt needs to explain the world post-Holocaust. And if you can't basically shut up, huh. you know. And I think that's such psychically such a big event. Uh, understandably so. And when you look at even like how theologians have opined and even changed their views in the midst of wars, this certainly happened with World War One. certainly happened with the Civil War. Um, certainly happened with Bart, I mean, who we, who we mentioned. I mean, his views of, yep. he shifts from being a sort of classic capital L liberal to yep. being a, the, the neo-Orthodox uh, advocate. Yeah. And Bart also, as you probably know, like Alistair McGrath, frankly, same kind of influence, both McGrath and Bart have said that one of the things that moved him to a more, quote, conservative uh, view of the Bible is being in rural, small rural churches and hearing the prayers and seeing the lives of ordinary Christians and seeing how they both believed God was going to act in time and space. And then actually knowing those people well enough that some things did happen 
that were quite inexplicable that couldn't be explained away by science or whatever. You know, uh, Ann Wilson's mentioned similar things too, uh, his kind of reconversion to Christianity. So that, that says a lot, you know, you got these formidable figures that we're talking about, but you've got some no-name people literally in these small right. towns that were hugely influential, influential. on yep. you know? So um, on the other side of the ledger, and I, I texted you this at the end, um, I want to make sure I, I get her in, is that I would say, and in fact, I, I, I got to give a little bit of background to this. So about three or four years ago, a really good friend named Bill recommended that we read this book together, The Crucifix. Okay. Yep. Climbing I got Rock. it. Okay. So it's some, some background here. This is a female Episcopalian minister. So right then, you know, probably some people are willing to dodge off now. Uh, but let me just say this, this was gushingly reviewed on the Gospel Coalition. I think Andrew Wilson did the review. So I don't agree with, you know, everything she says for sure. Um, so I read it with Bill. I took, and I've got my notes, my, my crib sheet here. Uh, I counted up, I, I, a lot of times when I read books like this, I'm always curious how many of these marginal notes I make. Yeah. You can see there. Yep. So my first read was 557 marginal notes. Then I mentioned it to a friend of mine, Warren, who's been on staff with the Campus Crusade for Christ about 45 years, recently left. I said, we ought to read this book together. I made another 345 marginal notes. So I got now, now over 900 marginal notes. The other day, I'm meeting with my friend Paul, and he says to me, hey, I just saw this interview with Fleming Rutledge and Russell Moore, maybe one of her last interviews, but it was on crucifixion. I'm thinking about reading it. So I told him, I said, well, I may do a third read of it, but it's going to be a while. I don't know when that's going to be. But I will tell you, Mike, as someone who's read a lot of theology books, um, and again, I don't agree with her all, but I'll read real briefly. This kind of summarizes kind of my feelings about the book. At the very, very end, on the last page, I wrote, the value of reading a book like this is not just getting great insights. There certainly is plenty of good content. There is also value in picking up what is what good writing looks like. Beyond or along with these things is the incredible benefit we get from seeing how and why Rutledge comes to such marvelous insights. In other words, we get to see how a great mind works. Yep. And, and kind of honestly, as a very much uh, a correction to Ye and others who are saying, you know, reading's not important. It's not just, reading's not just for pleasure. It's not just for content. We're seeing like with Chesterton, as you well know, you read, you read orthodoxy and you're, you're almost distracted in a way, in a good way, but it, it, it's why it repays multiple reads because you're not only seeing these brilliant, funny insights with Chesterton or whoever the writer is, but you're, as you're reading it, you're finding yourself going, how does he do that? So effortlessly. Yeah, how yeah, and, the and there's world? something else I think um, I've, I've read. So she's got a book on Advent. Is it just called yes. Advent? Yeah. Very good. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I've read more of Advent than I have crucifixion. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's in a very different class as a, you know, well, as pastors know, one of the surprising challenges of pastoral ministry is that it's always Christmas. You're like, oh my goodness, I got four messages I got to give on Christmas. Uh, and what am I going to do this year? And I've, I've, I've tried, I've, Swindoll had a line where he says, I've preached uh, Advent messages from every conceivable vantage point, including through the eyes of the camel in the nativity. <laughs> And uh, I've written plays. I've done, I mean, I've done everything. I've interviewed Herod. I've, you know, I, I've done it all. So I'm always buying stuff on Christmas just because, okay, maybe there's a sermon in here. Maybe there's some idea. Yeah. And when I got a hold of that, so I picked up Advent. I think it was at Asbury Seminary. I was there and hmm. it was in a sale, sh you know, and so I'm going, oh, I didn't know Rutledge at the time. I go, okay, uh, Episcopal uh, priest. Uh, New York, and she's in New York, right? 
Um, I thought this is going to be sort of light, liberal, pablum, but I buy anything I can. And I was just shocked. And I was like, oh, this is a treasure find. So I would say this about some great writers. There is the content. There is the um, there is great writing and how a mind works. And then there's something disruptive under the surface that you can't even necessarily identify, but you just go, this is moving pieces in my heart. And I don't even, I can't articulate it, but I think I'm seeing everything differently because of this book. So I've not read Crucifixion, so I can't say that about Rutledge, but, but about great writing. Yeah. And, and I think we should, um, you know, I, I think you would agree reading well is work and mm-hmm. it, it, you got to invest a lot of time in it. I, I read in different levels throughout the course of the day because you can only read the really deep stuff that you got to read slow and take notes yeah. and think about and talk about. Um, I, you just, I can't do that very much. By the end of the day, I'm reading, I mean, right now I'm reading B.B. Netanyahu's autobiography. Is That's pretty, pretty light. Or I, mostly I read fiction at night. But, but it, it, it is an investment, but it pays for itself. And if you wonder if reading is better than watching, read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death and yeah. understand how TV and screens fundamentally influence us differently. And yeah. Yeah, no okay. doubt. Yeah, we, yeah. I've got to keep an eye on the clock. We got to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got what fifteen minutes or so. Yeah, so we need to jump now to books, and I will let you go okay. first. So, um, you know, let let we got to. I I got to pay, you know, homage to to Lewis. Uh, I I've read I think ten or twelve Lewis books. Um, I don't know what I would say are my very fa- well. Actually, I I. I I think if I had to pick my three or four very favorites, Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, Surprised by Joy, um, and maybe Great Divorce would be the four that would be all vying for that top spot. I think, again, with Lewis, you know, Piper did a thing on this, and so have other people picked up that you get both the kind of the imaginative, romantic but you also get the hard edges of reason and rationality. So I think Piper called him a romantic rationalist in a talk. And I think, again, seeing those things put together, I think Chesterton's really strong in that regard as well, where you get kind of the very winsome, very imaginative, but you realize he's kind of very winsomely, but he's just kind of pushing the dagger further, further into your heart like making these points. Um, I think Lewis certainly, I, I would want to underscore him as a really consequential and, and influential for me, a doctor, actually uh, an MD, a family MD, when I was a probably early college, gave me a copy of Mere Christianity. So that was kind of my entree into Lewis many years ago. So I just, I'll jump in here and say, when I was first starting to wrestle with faith, I'm probably junior in high school, and my parents and I, I'm very frustrated by the, by the very liberal church that I was attending, trying to not have to attend, and uh, my parents said, look, you need to go talk to the pastor, mm-hmm. so I did, and, uh, you know, he, I, I asked him, he, he was, he did not believe his statement because I asked him, I said, every week you lead us in saying the apostles creed, you know, I believe in God, the father almighty maker. I, I went through it. I said, you don't believe that, do you? And he said, I don't. And I said, uh, wow. <laughs> why do you have us say it? I mean, it's just like, it's like, what are we doing? You, you lead us in saying, say this, I believe, but then you don't believe it. He says, yeah, I don't believe it. So on the way out, I mean, I'm literally, I've stood up. We've, we've talked, met for an hour. I've stood up. I'm getting ready to walk out. He says, you know, you should read Mere Christianity. I think you're going to like it. 
And I thought, uh, well, with a recommendation, uh, with a title like that, Mere Christianity, coming from that guy, I didn't read it for a long time. And people kept yeah. talking about it. I'm like, I'm not reading that book. Then when I read it, I was like, why would he recommend this book? I, I still don't know. But wow. That's anyway, <laughs> I've handed out many copies of Mere Christianity. Same. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Martin Luther King. And again, for me, my first year as a Christian, I don't know how it happened, but I think it was a used bookstore, but I got his collection of addresses, a short little paperback called Strength to Love, hmm. which was really formative. And, and yes, I mean, Mike and I know well about the plagiarism charges with his BU dissertation and all the rest, the adultery and all that. I would still highly recommend Strength to Love. I think his, his moral clarity in that book, um, and again, notwithstanding all the, the problems, but what he's actually saying in that book is remarkable. And that, that book did have an early big influence on me. Well, I, I'm going to do a, a podcast on King, and I've, I've been doing a little bit of work, and I have heard that we're coming up, we're four or five years away from the FBI releasing these files that are, you know, were set aside for however many years. And uh, that all kinds of allegations are going to come out. So I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little confused and conflicted by that. I do find uh, some of what he's written and all of which he wrote. I mean, did he die at 35? I mean, he was, he won a Nobel Peace Prize at 29, uh, 68, so like 39, I think. 39. 39. Yeah, so, I mean, all this stuff, these, yes, some of it plagiarized, but profound all the same. Yeah. So, yes, I'm a, I'm a fan. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think Orwell is certainly, you know, on writers, uh, when I think of, even as you were given kind of the summary of the 20th century, I think he's a writer that speaks into a lot of those realities, the disruptive nature, uh, government wars, uh, need for more cl courage, clarity, uh, cutting through all the, you know, the bojive, the stuff that's just not true and really incisively laying out, which everyone knows is true, but as, as uh, a lot of pe people have said, you know, in turbulent and chaotic times, sometimes you need to declare the obvious and say it again. So people go, oh yeah, propaganda is big, obviously in the 20th century. I think Orwell, I mean, obviously the, the typical books, 1984, but I would recommend uh, Animal Farm as well. And yeah. also, especially How I Write. Um, I think that little book is exceptional, uh, 120 pages or something. Um, probably I, you know, I might as well, I, I joke sometimes I need to just take a paintbrush and just start stroking the pages. Cause if you probably looked at the amount of brackets and added it up, you go, well, your brackets pretty much are the, yeah, whole cover the whole book. <laughs> I have not read that. I, I, about a year ago, I reread animal farm and yeah, I was just, shocked at how prescient he was on so yeah. many things yeah by the way you you familiar with this idea that orwell and uh golding and vonnegut and tolkien and lewis all wrote these these fictional accounts about the epic struggle between good and evil all of them wounded in some way in, in mm -hmm. industrial war none of them able to write a, a non-fiction description of what they went through, but Vonnegut, yeah. uh, Slaughterhouse Five, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings, the Chronicles of Narnia, all these people, Lord of the Flies, trying to come at this uh, and say, what are we up against? And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Lacante's book on uh, on Tolkien and Lewis and their experiences in the First World War is exceptional to the very thing you're talking about. I mean, Lewis went in as a pretty hard-bitten atheist and then was injured, came out as even a harder uh, atheist. Tolkien did not lose his faith. 
But Lewis, when he came out, there was uh, famously this man, again, not known to the annals of history, but there's a guy that was known in the community as kind of being the sage older guy. And when Lewis came out of the war, he was taking a walk with this man. And um, Lewis reports that he this older man turned to him and said, Jack, you know, if you really thought about what life was about, for just one hour, you would go insane. So don't do mm. it. You need to distract yourself, basically. Mm. So that's that's a terrific book. The Lacante book is really really good. We uh, we I'm going to do a, a course on Lewis for the Lakelight Institute, which we started. So next year, so I've oh, been yeah. gathering my Lewis stuff. I taught a class a couple of years ago, so I'm pulling that stuff out. So I'll I'll add yeah. that. Yeah. I'm also great. watching. I'm going to, because we'll be going to Oxford and Cambridge at the end of it. Uh, I, I'm brushing up on some Tolkien and I have not watched. I realized I had not watched The Hobbit. So Sherry and I have been watching The Hobbit with yeah. uh, our boys. I haven't seen I've it. I've read it. I've read it many times, but I've yeah. not seen the uh, Peter Jackson rendition, which is oh. a little darker than I think. Than oh, the, really? Okay. Um, Little, little darker, I think, uh, but obviously a great, a great story. So that's great. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, I mentioned Tolkien as well. Flannery O'Connor, uh, because I mentioned Ralph. Um, I would definitely say she, her short stories. You know, you got this complete uh, okay. stories is very good, and I would start with something like Revelation. What she's really good, and again, uh, again, her language is is raw, and and uh, she certainly describes racist people. She wants us to see our own sin in people that we think are just abhorrent, and instead of being detached and going, "Oh gosh, what awful people those people are," she's writing in such a way that uh, this is kind of us, right? And then Ralph's book. Um, Flannery O'Connor and the Christ Haunted South is just, I, I can't speak too highly about it. I mean, it's just an exceptional published by Erdman's. It's in that series of biographies that they do. That's so well done. I'm doing the reading the Emily Dickinson one by Lundeen right now, same series. Um, this may be even a good ent entree into um, Flannery O'Connor because Ralph includes uh, some extended insights and excerpts on various essays and stuff. So that Flannery O'Connor, I think, is is really good for getting away from abstractions about sin to getting very granular and very convicting. <laughs> A lot of times it's easy to talk about, oh, yeah, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, yada, yada, yada. Kind of glaze over. It's the right thing to check the box and be orthodox and stuff. Flannery O'Connor really just kind of grabs you by the scruff of the neck and just jams you in there and says, look at this. Your, your posture, your, your affections, everything about you is a lot more fallen than you can imagine. And I'm going to show you through these various characters. So mm -hmm. I would highly recommend her. So, um, you want me to mention anyone else there? Um, can I give a shout out? How are we doing on time? Can I give a shout out for Packer? One one shout out for Packer. Your okay. last shout out. Okay. I, I would say, you know, uh, in fact, Doreen right now is, my wife is rereading Knowing God. She had read it in her 20s like me. And I don't think I've read it. I think I, re, I, think I reread it in my 40s, but it's probably been 25 years or so since I've done the third read of it. Um, you know, sometimes you realize, you know, you kind of forget about a book, at least consciously. And because she's rereading it, and I was kind of going back, looking at some of my notes, and I thought, this book was really significant in my formation. Yeah. Kind of like what you said with Stodd. Stodd, I would say the same way, you know, basic Christianity, a whole bunch of other things. You 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 kind of forget about it, you know, like, like sometimes I might even be talking to someone, hey, what's a good introduction to the Christian faith? And what 
might not roll off my tongue right away is basic Christianity, but stop. But I realized, oh, that was really formative. Yeah. Same way with Packer. I think Packer's knowing God, very significant influence. And then later on is stuff on the Puritans, uh, evangelism. I think, I think his opening to that is, <clears throat> as a clown has yearned to play Hamlet, I have learned, I have yearned to write a treatise on God. Yep, exactly. This is not it. Um, <laughs> don't don't think that this is a treatise on God. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's. I looked at it ten years ago, and I what I remember thinking is, oh yeah, there's good stuff here, and there's a little bit little bit more to it than I thought. But it's also it was it was sort of a a time bound piece. You sort of climb in and go, oh, these are the issues that people were dealing with, and he's calling them out, and um, yeah. 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 Well, hey, I'm going to go to my list here because yeah, we're yeah. bumping yeah. up on time. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I love having these conversations, the actually getting forced into saying what what are the 10 books you're going to recommend? You just go, yeah, I'm, I'm not playing by those rules. So it seems like there's all kinds of stuff that to read about in terms of post-modernity and a different set of books on feminism and then different books on economics and psychology i mean you got you got you got science you got politics my, i mean mein Kampf and mao and betty Friedan and and milton friedman and kinsey and i mean so i came away and i said four books that i have um that i have recommended to a lot of people and i'll just go with those four so mere christianity uh some you know to capture lewis i i love so much of lewis uh lord of the rings which um you know, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a fantasy guy. I, I don't think I've read any other fantasy I've read besides The Hobbit, which is arguably part of this uh, book. But um, well, I, I read the Harry Potter series, so I did get sucked into that. Uh, but I don't I don't live in the science fiction and fantasy world, but I thought these were so profound. Um, I put down Cancer Ward. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Just because I, I felt like I had to do something with a Russian writer. And uh, I thought the way Solzhenitsyn sort of dissected 20th century and all the different worldviews and, and such a wonderful metaphor to put these different sick people in a cancer ward debating what's going on. So I recommended that. And then uh, and then I did. Uh, I had down amusing ourselves to death because mm -hmm. I have recommended the book a lot. Yeah. And I just think. He, you know, in the 80s, I think he wrote this, uh, yeah. he was seeing so much about what is happening. And it's, it's be so much worse than he could have imagined, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, um, okay, so we did the final five last time. I don't know, is, is there anything different? What, what are you reading at night right now? Have you changed out your, you had your list of books, you're reading eight to 10 at, at the time. Right. Anything that you read when you're ready to sort of turn your brain off and uh, relax? You know, what I do is that uh, that that is one of the benefits of purposely reading usually somewhere between six to 10 books at the same time is that some of those books are dense. Like, for example, I'm doing a slow study through the Federalist Papers. You know, I've dipped in and out of the Federalist Papers, but I've never read all 85 and kind of thought through, do I buy this argument? You know, if Madison was back here or Hamilton or Jay, is this still serviceable? I think the chaos in our world. So I'll read something like that. Now the Federalist paper, I'll read one essay at a time. Uh, Hamilton especially is, is rather, and so is Madison, uh, rather dense writers, a lot of ideas, a lot of things going on. So because I couple that with something that is maybe lighter, you know, like I'm doing a, a blurb for a friend on his really fascinating rework of his doctoral dissertation that's coming out as a book pretty soon on how um, Union Seminary had an oversized influence on Protestant Chinese uh, mid 20th century stuff. Uh, he's kind of done a lot of archival work, did it under Alistair McGrath, really remarkable, but that's a faster read. You know, it's, it's just narrative. And so I'll mix up different books. Roger, who you mentioned, our mutual friend, 
he really wanted me to read uh, Constitution of Knowledge. Yeah. He was he was pitching me this morning. Uh, I said, yeah. I, 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 and I said, hey, I, I mean, I was able to sort of come back at him and said, you know what, uh, Roush was saying. I said, I just listened to an interview with him this two days ago. I said, what he was saying is the he's most worried about in terms of abuse with the whole epistemological restructuring of things, and and. Uh, Rogers, I, I, I don't know. He, he had some guesses, but I said he's most concerned about higher ed on the left in mm. terms of the way it's it has uh, jettisoned yeah. any sort of rational, uh, willing to discuss and to debate ideas and to let the ideas sort of carry the yeah. day. So Yeah. So I'm reading that as well. That's a book that. So let's is, just note that yeah. is not a book I would pick up after six o'clock. That is a dense book. I'm talking no, that about. Is a, yeah, yeah, it is a dense book. How and, about a comic book? How about a uh, a biography? How about something? Well, I like uh, I like some cartoons. I'll look. At <laughs> um, you know, I yeah, I'll 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 maybe take uh, like our our oldest son, his best man for my last birthday gave me a book, uh, kind of a sci-fi fiction. And I told him, I said, and I now that's on my stack that I'm just starting. It's very light reading, literally 65 years old. This is my first work of science fiction. Probably my last, unless I get hooked. <laughs> well, <Yes>. So, <laughs> so I, I just want to say my definition of a book that I will read at night yeah. is I do not want a pen in my hand. Yes. If I'm inclined to underline something or to think about it or to scribble yeah. the margins, that's a book I'm going to say no. That's I'm I am done with that. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So we, we have we have uh exhausted, I'm sure exhausted the listeners because there's now another 200 books that they're feeling <laughs> they should read. Yeah. Yeah, don't don't think about it that way, but pick up a book and read and learn and and if you're going to read, read something that's worth reading. And uh, not all books are worth reading. Some books are, and some books are worth reading two or three times because they're really good. So uh, look at those lists. We have shared some of ours. And uh, Godspeed, David, good to be with you again. Say hello to yeah. our mutual friends in Austin, Texas, and I will catch up with you later. Sounds good. Okay.